This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of Foreign Policy Advocacy and Entrepreneurship, How a New Generation in Congress is Shaping U.S. Engagement with the World. The book was published uh, by Jeffrey Lantis, and the publisher is University of Michigan Press. I have Jeff on the phone today. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Yeah, it's a, a pleasure to have read the book. During this podcast, we always give people the chance to introduce themselves Uh, Would you just share a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Heath, and thanks for this opportunity. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about the book. Uh, The book really represents an extension of my own professional interests in terms of teaching and research. So I'm a professor of political science at the College of Worcester in Ohio. I teach classes related to United States foreign policy and international security. Uh, But I'm also really interested in uh, key questions like how Congress has played a role in shaping foreign policy decision-making in recent decades and how contemporary foreign policy issues right there on the front pages today, like uh, the Iran tensions or the North Korea standoff, um, can be understood using theoretical lenses. Yeah, great. The the book is so interesting. Uh, So interesting because of its timeliness, not just uh, the things that are in the news, but also some contemporary trends in what's happening in Congress. And the beginning of the book, you kind of characterize where the field has been in the past and then point to some of its those limitations. And, and you write at the beginning of the book that congressional activism, uh, activism suggests entrepreneurs tend to be veteran legislatures with expertise, credibility, and dedication to a cause. This is perhaps what's characterized the past. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and and also what's changed in Congress to make this uh, traditional approach maybe less effective in understanding what's going on today. Yeah, exactly. So so thinking about the traditional literature, um, there's a lot of literature, of course, going back decades on the executive legislative balance and its influence on domestic and foreign policy development. And so broadly speaking, the book kind of embeds on that stronger or broader foundation and then narrows in to look at what has emerged in the last, well, 20 years or so, some research by foreign policy analysts on congressional foreign policy entrepreneurship. And here I'm building off a a great book by uh, Ralph Carter and Jim Scott down at Texas Christian University called Choosing to Lead. They published that with Duke University Press back in 2009, where they lay out the traditional, if you will, approach to our thinking about congressional foreign policy engagement, activism, and assertiveness. And that traditional approach emphasizes um, long-term expertise and development, emphasizes the importance of things like uh, senior committee leadership status, 
or senior party leadership status. So I kind of jokingly refer to this, I don't write it this way, but I jokingly refer to this as kind of thinking about uh, this in the traditional sense, that the way to be influential in Congress, according to the old school literature, is to be a very senior, experienced member of Congress, and by the way, specifically a senator, to try to shape or influence U.S. foreign policy, versus the change, the diversification that we're seeing in the real world as we look at patterns and trends in Congress. But also, theoretically, what I tried to do was build out or, or build off of their traditional model to argue that we can imagine a lot of different ways that a new generation of members of Congress can shape foreign policy. And, and what might a new member of Congress, we can understand what somebody with decades of experience, how they might approach their subject matter, but what would a, a new member of, of Congress, especially one uh, from, a, from a district that is, is not directly tied in an obvious way uh, to foreign policy issues, which most congressional districts are not. Uh, how do you imagine they approach this? What, what would matter? What would shape their, their advocacy and entrepreneurship on foreign policy issues? Yeah, I think you're right on there, right? You're also relating this to the, to the broader arguments in the literature about when and where Congress can become activated, can become involved or concerned with foreign policy. And while there are a lot of districts in the United States where we might imagine less of a connection, in some of those same districts, we're seeing the emergence of some interesting activists, if you will, in lawmakers who care about particular issues. So, so let me frame real quickly this idea of a new generation of leadership. We all know recent trends in terms of the turnover and changes on Capitol Hill. We're talking about the uh, new current session, 116th session of Congress, as being one of the most ethnically and racially diverse one with the highest percentage of female legislators and other diversity in terms of things like religion. We've also got some interesting players who are veterans of the war on terror, who have become then lawmakers and representatives engaged in these processes. These kinds of new members, uh, entrepreneurs who I define for purposes of my book study as members who were served for eight years or less, on Capitol Hill in Congress, in either chamber, or both in some cases, um, are those kinds of newer, diverse, and interesting, uh, smart uh, legislators who approach issues with uh, different perspectives on things. They bring perspectives from their professional backgrounds and trainings, perspectives from their own life experiences that have led them, in some cases, to become real activists, real assertive entrepreneurs on particular foreign policy issues they care about. Now, the, the cases that you, you choose to study are, are what are so very interesting. And, you know, if you think of foreign policy as, as somehow obscure or hard to understand, you look at the issues you've chosen, immigration, trade, um, uh, nuclear uh, disarmament, uh, climate change, cybersecurity. These are some of the most important issues that the U.S. is dealing with not just internationally, but also domestically, Right. you then choose some very interesting uh, characters to focus on. And, and I wanted to talk about those. Um, one of the chapters is on immigration and trade policy. And you juxtapose two members of Congress who aren't normally thought of together. I wonder if you can talk about that <laughs> choice, uh, what makes them interesting, and, and how they uh, approached uh, what you call their foreign policy obstruction on these issues. Yeah, terrific. So one of the chapters indeed kind of juxtaposes or compares the congressional foreign policy entrepreneurship and assertivism 
of two interesting policymakers, Representative Michelle Bachman, a far-right conservative from Stillwater, Minnesota, who is very engaged as a leader of the Tea Party in her challenges to immigration policy reforms, compared with or juxtaposed against Senator Elizabeth Warren, that Democrat that many of us know now as a presidential candidate who uh, was very activist over the last couple of years of the Obama administration in trying to fight free trade legislation, in particular, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And so what we've got then is a far-right conservative in Michelle Bachman and a far-left, if you will, or progressive member of Congress in Elizabeth Warren, who are in the end adopting some surprisingly similar strategies of engagement in their challenges to particular initiatives. And uh, those strategies include a diverse mix of things like building advocacy coalitions, working with interest groups who are concerned about the issues that they care about as well, using things like social media, ever more and more popular as a medium to reach out and engage a broader audience. Michelle Bachman, in some ways, was, uh, you know, kind of on the front edge of all of that, using a variety of mixed media, including social media, but also appearances on Fox News, regular engagement with things like Breitbart Radio as ways to get her cause or her message out as well. So what you've got are two very different characters matched in one chapter who, it turns out, tend to use similar strategies as this new generation of innovators. Now, I'm not sure exactly the time period you did this work, but it's certainly not very recently, but you chose another topic that has um, uh, become increasingly a part of the news cycle, that is the Iran nuclear deal um, and also United Nations Arms Trade Treaty. Um, this has been in the recent conversation, but, but is, is not brand new. This is also a case of uh, congressional, um, obst- uh, congressional entrepreneurship in, uh, through obstruction. What about that case? Uh, is, it, is it similar? to the uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, and Michelle Bachman case or or different in some way? Yeah. So what we've got in the case of the Iran nuclear deal struggle is we have a very interesting congressional foreign policy entrepreneur. And we're describing these as examples or illustrations of the eight comparative case studies that I developed for the project. This one focuses on Senator Tom Cotton, the Republican from Arkansas, who entered the Senate following a 2014 election. So entered in January 2015. And here is a young Tom Cotton who is brand new in the Senate, who decides that one of his main issues, one of the first things he wants to focus on is to try to block the pending nuclear agreement with Iran, that JCPOA agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action, that was to freeze effectively Iran's nuclear program development in exchange for the relief of sanctions. And I could go on about this story, but I'll just highlight the brief, brief and very interesting elements of it. I mean, Senator Tom Cotton is in many ways kind of the epitome, uh, the vision of uh, an ideal conservative senator. This is a young man who graduated from Harvard Law School and then made a decision to enroll in a combat division for deployments in Iraq and actually spent a little time in Afghanistan as well. Um, where he was awarded various medals for uh, for his leadership during that period. So we've got a war veteran from the War on Terror who comes away from his experience in the Middle East, eventually makes it to Capitol Hill, 
and in the Senate decides that this is one of the things he wants to challenge. He doesn't want the Obama administration to make those concessions to the Islamic Republic of Iran. And he tries to use a variety of means to challenge those initiatives. What's interesting about Tom Cotton's strategies are that he tries to confront it in a very direct and legislative way on Capitol Hill. But Tom Cotton also knows as a new, younger entrepreneur that he can reach out to other advocacy groups and gain support for a momentum shift to try to oppose the passage of the Iran deal. He joins with organizations like APAC, the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, and others who are concerned about you know, stronger ties with Iran or loosening sanctions. And so Tom Cotton pushes very hard to try to block the Iran deal. The interesting postscript to that story, and I'll just mention it briefly, is this. In the end, Tom Cotton fails to block, to actually prevent the development of the Iran nuclear deal in the short run. That is, the deal becomes finalized in the summer of 2015. Congress does not vote to override or end it a few months later, and it takes place. It becomes then part of our understanding of the relationship. But it is Tom Cotton who becomes a key foreign policy advisor for a new candidate for the presidency, Donald Trump, and becomes his insider advisor and supporter, and has then encouraged him from then till now to challenge the Iran deal and ultimately encouraged him to end U.S. participation in it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, your typical uh, person viewing Congress as obstruction, of course, that's exactly what we expect of Congress. Uh, members of Congress are simply good at getting in the way. <laughs> but your book is also about innovation and members of Congress who are trying to uh, not just obstruct, not just uh, block deals, but also make deals. And, and you focus on uh, climate and global health in chapter five uh, and, and talk about some of the interesting uh, uh, bipartisan ways that members of Congress are going about taking on this challenge. What does that case show you that's, that's different from the, uh, the, the obstruction of, of the previous analysis? What, what's going on here in the case of uh, climate change and a Republican member of Congress who's looking to innovate in this area? Oh, yeah, I really appreciate you highlighting that. I mean, so indeed, the the book does set out to examine a variety of ways that these entrepreneurs can be influential, not just blocking, stalling, or preventing something, right? But also being innovators, being engines of change, as DeSalvo once wrote, uh, talking about ways that they can be influential in shaping things. And so we've got this neat little juxtaposition in one chapter of innovation efforts by uh, Representative Carlos Corbello, a Republican from Florida. His district is the city of Miami. Carlos Corbello is a young, new congressional foreign policy entrepreneur who arrives in Washington, D.C. with background and experience in the city of Miami. He was on the city council and a variety of other administrative roles in and around the city that came to Washington aware of, keenly aware of, the challenges of climate change 
because every day when he was working and living in and around Miami and for his constituents, climate change is a reality. It's a challenge and it's a concern as rising sea levels can influence everything associated with life and living around the city. So Carbello comes to Washington as a Republican, but someone deeply committed to try to innovate in developing climate change responses. He finds uh, friends and allies in a variety of places, including some other reform-minded Republicans in the House of Representatives and people across the aisle who are ready and willing to work with him. Carlos Corbello wants to then be an innovator to actually help the Obama administration to make progress in improving and strengthening our climate change policies. He does this with the support of an advocacy coalition. Once again, Carlos Corbello reaches out to and finds a variety of interest groups and faith-based organizations in Washington, D.C., who are ready to work with him on this important and long-term issue. In fact, some of the faith-based organizations that were part of his coalition uh, included some folks that I talked to about that experience, and they found it to be a wonderful interactive experience where they were exchanging information with the congressman's office, where staffers on the congressman's, in the congressman's office were working with them to encourage, advance, and develop legislation associated with mitigating climate change. So a great case study for a moderate Republican. But if I may, let me also mention a postscript here. Carlos Corbello is a moderate Republican who, in the 2018 midterm election cycle, faced real challenge from the right, not to mention from the left. And Corbello is one of the very few examples from the book of members who lost re-election recently. Yeah, let me ask you about that, which is, for the book, uh, I gather you, you did interviews with various... Uh, I don't know if it was it was members or staffers or, or or people in between. But when you talk to them about these issues, what did they make of this change that you were observing? Do they see this as something that is uh, beneficial to U.S. foreign policy or or a hindrance? Uh, what do they make of the case of of the the member of Congress from Florida you just described, who took on these issues and ultimately lost re-election? Perhaps not because of this, but maybe it's related. So. What what is the what are the interviews that you did um, suggest about these changes in Congress? Yeah, so the bulk of the interviews that I did for the project and uh, included about two months of time that I spent on Capitol Hill in early 2017. Early 2017 is also politically significant, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Talking to a variety of members of Congress, staffers, experts and interest group and lobby representatives from across Washington that would tell me parts of larger stories like the advocacy coalition narrative, for example. Many, many people that I talked to were actually quite optimistic and hopeful for this new generation to effect some important changes. No surprise that parts of members of the advocacy coalition working with Carlos Carrello's office were very ha- uh, happy and optimistic about what they saw as the possibility or middle ground reform. No surprise as well, perhaps, that several of the uh, staff members that I talked to on Capitol Hill all cited and recognized the importance of new members with specific areas of expertise arriving in the Capitol to help affect change. Examples of that would, of course, include military veterans, like the idea that uh, key representatives from Tom Cotton to Tammy Duckworth 
a House member and now a senator from Illinois, um, could speak to critical issues and be powerful, if you will, witnesses or activists in support of the issues that they cared about. And a variety of other examples, like Will Hurd, the Republican representative from Texas, who happened to have a professional background in training in cybersecurity. And when he was elected to Capitol Hill a few years ago, one of the first things he did was encouraged every member of Congress to change their passwords, <laughs> to develop a stronger regimen for two-factor or multi-factor authentication for communications and data storage. So very specific, small incidents of optimism, and then a broader sense across the group that I spoke with that indeed these individuals were affecting change. And what about the old timers? Even with this change, there are still plenty of members of Congress who've been there for a long time and plenty of those old timers who have been had longstanding interests. What has this done to their work? Uh, has it changed it? Have they stepped aside? What's the dynamic been between the uh, generations of members of Congress? Yeah, I, I love that question because it speaks to kind of the heart of this issue of, of you know, are we seeing fundamental changes uh, or are we seeing just a kind of predictable pattern developing over time? Let's say this. There are still, of course, uh, a strong number of active senior members of Congress in both the House and the Senate who are incredibly influential. These are party leaders. These are committee chairpersons, et cetera. But in the last 20 years, we've also seen a recognition on Capitol Hill by those same individuals and others that there needs to be more room for change. An example would be the way that the Republican Party leadership changed its programs for assignment of committee chairpersonship. The idea that the Republicans have become more open to transition in committees makes a big difference. And guess what? The Democratic Party leadership is behind on that issue. And uh, an advisor to a senior member of Congress talked to me about that concern, meaning that they're a little worried about whether or not they're providing the best training and support for Democrats who are new on Capitol Hill to gain the experience necessary to be long-term influencers. So it's a, it's a balanced relationship, right? Back and forth. But I think that both sides recognize that there has to be an effort to find ways for new innovative voices to shape the dynamic of politics. And as we think on a domestic policy level for a second, as we think about the challenges that Speaker Nancy Pelosi faces right now in managing a restive progressive coalition, a variety of new far left members in uh, her caucus, we see these dynamics at play, this effort to find a balance. Yeah, again, the very interesting book is written uh, by uh, who you've been hearing from, uh, Jeff Lantis, and the, the title is Foreign Policy Advocacy and Entrepreneurship, How a New Generation in Congress is Shaping U.S. Engagement with the World. The book is published by University of Michigan Press this year. And I thank Jeff so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Heath. I enjoyed it. <laughs> 